have a seat. <clears throat> you know, I think it's easy for us to come to church and sort of do some evaluation, right? We sort of think through the service. Did they sing the songs that I like to sing? Did they sing the songs I like to sing in the way I like to sing them? Were the people on stage wearing the clothes that I think that they should wear? Was the temperature exactly right? That's a hard one, right? We have all those thoughts because we live in a culture in which we evaluate everything. We have all kinds of choices, so we think through, is this what I like? Like we go to a restaurant, and did they have the right kind of food? Did they prepare it the right way? Was it warm enough, cold enough? Were we treated right? Did the building look clean? Did it look nice? And if it wasn't, if it didn't please us, then we can go somewhere else next time, right? Or for watching some kind of media, maybe it's the news, maybe it's entertainment. Did we like what was said, how it was said, was it entertaining? And if we don't like it, if it didn't make us happy, we can watch something else. And it's easy for us to treat church sort of the same way. Did it please me? Is the building nice enough? Is the furniture in the right place? Was the volume just right? All those things that come to mind we evaluate because if it didn't make me happy, then well, we could just go somewhere else because there are other choices. And so I think we fall into this trap just like we do in lots of other places because we have choices in all areas of life. We fall into the trap in church of thinking, well, this is all about me. We're in this series that I'm calling Mythbusters, and we're thinking through some conventional wisdom about church life, really some that grows from the culture more than church, but we apply it over into church life, and some of that's just really not true. They are myths, and today we're going to think about an important myth, I think, in our culture because it's pervasive, and it's this. The church exists to make me happy. Is that really what it's all about? And maybe this is not something we would actually say, but it's the way we operate, the way that we think, the way that we do church is, I mean, this is just about making me happy. And I think most of us can do that at one time or another. But the question is, is that what the Bible says? Today, to think through that, I want us to turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll get there in a minute. Mark's probably the first of the Gospels written, and he talks a lot about the action of Jesus' life. And today we're going to look at a little interchange that Jesus has with some of his disciples. Now, some of you might say, well, when Jesus was alive, the church didn't exist. Well, and that's true, really. The church doesn't come into existence until after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then the day of Pentecost comes and the church starts. That's in the book of Acts. So everything before that, all four Gospels, is before church. But... What we find in the Gospels is that Jesus has a group of people who are following. We call them disciples because that's what the word means, followers. He's got large groups of people who hear him preach and teach, and then a smaller group who follow him basically wherever he goes. They witness all the miracles. They hear all the teaching they saw when he died and was raised from the dead. They know all of that happened. And they're called the apostles later on, but the twelve when Jesus is alive. We know that they were the closest to Jesus. And what we see is that people who follow Jesus before the cross and people who follow Jesus after the cross are a lot alike. And we make very similar mistakes and we get some wrong-headed thinking. 
going on and it needs to be corrected. And that's just what Jesus does in this story that we find in Mark chapter 10. Two of Jesus' disciples come to him. And this is what happens. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, James and John, their brothers, sons of Zebedee, sometimes called the sons of thunder, which is a nickname they seem to have earned for their bombacity, okay? Two pretty close people to Jesus. In fact, there's that 12, but, but there's really three that Jesus is closest to that he pulls aside for some really important moments in his ministry. Peter, and then the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Uh, James dies relatively early in the life of the church, but... But John becomes one who gives us a big chunk of our New Testament, the Gospel of John, three letters, and then Revelation, the last book. So important leaders in the life of the church even. But here, before the church is in existence, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we'd like for you to do something for us, but we're not going to tell you what it is. Will you go ahead and say yes before we ask? Now, that's like when your young kids to come to you and say, Dad, open your mouth and close your eyes. And the answer to that is, no, right? <laughs> Not going to do it. And Jesus sort of says that too. He doesn't really even acknowledge that. He just basically says, well, what is it that you want? Because he doesn't know what they're asking yet. Well, Jesus would have known, but they've not said it. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, even that first request of Jesus, hey, Jesus, just say yes and do whatever we ask, that shows that these guys, they had some wrong thinking going on because you can tell already they think, hey, Jesus, we're on the inside. We get special privilege. You'll do what we want even before we ask it. And here we see what it is. Jesus we want the special places. I mean, the ancient world, if you're sitting on the right and the left of the king, and this is still true in a lot of places, you've got the title, you've got the power, you've got the position, influence. You get to speak directly to the king. You're an important person. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, want to be the two at the, the very center. Now, in their minds... They still think Jesus is going to be a king reigning in Jerusalem on a throne. They don't have all this figured out yet, but, but they want to be on the inside. They want the key positions, and it's clear that they think they've earned it. I mean, hey, Jesus, you don't have any better disciples than us. We've been there all the way through, good, bad. Otherwise, we're always faithful. Jesus, we deserve this. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking for. You don't get it. Are you really willing to follow me through everything? And yes, Jesus, we're ready to do it. And Jesus says, you know what? It's not my place even. You're going to suffer. You're going to go through some hard times because you follow me. And following Jesus is not always easy. Jesus never promised easy. And so he tells them that. And he says, listen, sitting on my right and my left, that's not even something I'm going to grant. That's already for those 
that have been prepared. You see, Jesus is looking ahead to something that James and John can't see yet. Something I think he knew was already in play. They're thinking about Jesus' glory, right? That sounds like a time when he is in charge, when everyone bows down to him, and they're going to be right there, right and left, everyone looking up at them. But Jesus knew that when he wore the crown and had a robe put on his back and he was lifted up, everyone who was there thought it would be in disgrace because it was the cross, it was execution. But in reality, in that moment, it was glory. In that moment, Jesus changes everything. In that moment, he becomes king. And they were not prepared to be there. There were two men who would hang on crosses beside him. And James and John were not ready to go there. They didn't know what they were talking about. Well, the other ten disciples sort of begin to overhear this conversation between Jesus and James and John. And they don't like what they're hearing. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're sort of thinking, James and John are, they're trying to jump ahead of us, get, a, get, a, get up in line ahead of us and take a special place. Well, who do they think they are? Why are they so special that they get these special places even though we've been with Jesus the whole time? We've followed Him. We've been just as faithful as they are and we will be faithful. They can't believe that these two guys have had the gall to think they will get the special places. And Jesus says, got some teaching to do. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus says, look, look at the Romans. These people who have come in and occupied our land, and people really thought Jesus was going to overthrow them. The way they operate is whoever's in charge, and they use their power to control, to get their way, to make sure their agenda moves forward. That's the way the Gentiles operate. That's the way the Romans rule us. It's not going to be that way in my kingdom. And then he brings it together. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Not what they were thinking. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, when I'm king, it's not about you getting what you want. It's not about your agenda. It's not about making sure you're happy with everything that's going on. It's about looking around and seeing who needs to be served. It's about looking around and seeing what we can do to serve God by serving other people. It's not about title or position or privilege or influence. It's about serving. And so this lesson that Jesus' disciples learned, first the two and then the twelve, that the kingdom is not about making you happy applies to us 
as Christians. The church doesn't exist to make us happy. The church exists to fulfill God's purposes. And God has a reason for us being together today. We don't call ourselves together. God calls us together. We are His people called by His name. And so in this place today, we are about His business, not ours. It is so easy for us to think about it in a different way. And so I think there's a couple of ways we work this out, and one is to watch your motives. You know, and this is, this is so true for church leaders. It's not just everybody in pews. It's for, it's for people like me. Because sometimes preachers are the worst about thinking, hey, I work here. I'm here more than anybody else. I, I give my life to ministry. Surely that gives me a place to talk about the way things should go. Surely, surely it should work the way I want it to work because of all I do. And so ministers can think maybe even more than anyone else. This is all about me being happy with what goes on here. And Jesus is saying, it's not about us being happy. It's about serving God. It's about becoming servants. Not people of influence, not people of privilege, not people of power or title, but choosing to be last rather than first. And so we have to watch our motives. We have to look inside and say, okay, what is this all about for me? Is this about, you know, the furniture being in the right place, the building looking good, the temperature, the volume, all those things that we could evaluate? Or is this about something else? What's going on in my heart? And so we have to be really honest, really candid with ourselves and examine, okay, what am I doing here? What needs to happen here if this is about serving God and serving others. And really that takes us to the second thing, which is to really focus on others. You know, when we're focused on ourselves, we focus on my happiness, what I want, all those things we've talked about, evaluating worship services or anything else. But when we begin to say, okay, what about other people? So how is our church, both in worship and in service and in fellowship and every part of church life, how are we affecting older people who may be lonely or hurting? How are we influencing younger people who are exploring their faith, maybe for the first time, or maybe, maybe making their faith their own for the first time? And having to really grapple with the important questions of faith. How are we ministering to people who are trying to figure out how to be parents or how to be a spouse or how to be a grandparent? How are we ministering to people who and just really, I mean, they've, they've walked along this walk for a while, but now they recognize, I want something more. I, I want to grow in this relationship in a way that I haven't in the past. And how are we affecting them? See, it's easy to think, is this all what I want? Instead of, how is this affecting the people in the room? the people in our community, the people who don't know Jesus at all. You see, God's purpose is that all would be brought into a relationship with Him because it changes life and it changes eternity. And so the question is, 
Are we loving God and loving others? It's easy to think that most anything in our lives, including church, is about making me happy. Jesus reminded James and John in this story, that's not it. Really everything, but especially church, is about fulfilling God's purpose. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would challenge, empower, and strengthen us so that we confront our own motives, confront our own feelings about church, that we recognize it's not about what we want, what makes us happy, but it will always be about fulfilling your purposes. So help us to see your purposes and help us to do whatever it takes to fulfill those purposes. Give us every ability we need, every strength we need, and use us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship.